So I wonder how, how difficult it is sometimes with the language barrier. You know, this was written in a different language. It had to be translated. And sometimes we miss things like, you know, puns and, you know, some types of, uh, you know, poetry type things or whatever. You can't quite get that. And, and probably people that speak another language, you know, come to hear English and they're probably the same way. It's like, that's, that's just weird. So an example that I have, <clears throat> a while back, we were doing studies in our home. We had a bunch of Burmese people. They're Chin and from Burma or Myanmar or whatever it's called now. And we were going through some study in Mark. And at one point we were talking about the unclean spirits uh, that were you know, possessing people or cast out. And we talked about that for a while. And then one of the, one of the young men there had a question. And he wanted, he's, you know, a little hard to understand, but he, was, he could speak some English. And he's like, he wanted to know about the dirty spirits. You know, so unclean, translate, dirty, the dirty spirits. What about those dirty spirits? And we had a conversation about that. But you could see how that would be. So I wonder a lot about when we're reading, we're not reading Greek and we're not seeing exactly what they wrote so that's why you have all those notes in your margin you know literally this or could be said this way or you know the order of the words and the things that are added to make it make sense in english now obviously people that translate it are trying to do the best they can to make it flow in our language you know you even look at the king james version of the bible and you read that and say wow that's kind of funny you know because of the the, the language, well, that was translated to try to make it sound like the language that they used in that day. So think about some of that as we go through this. And it's like, well, that, that word is, you know, the wrong tense, or that word is this, and that word is something else. It's like, okay, maybe he's, maybe he's using some type of uh, uh, literary thing that we're not real familiar with in Greek. And it just comes out a little different that way. So, I said all that because I don't have a clue what this means, so I'm just trying to make an excuse. <laughs> we started in chapter 7 and the beginning of it and talking about uh, the law. Actually, chapter 7 is about being dead to the law. I think it's important to keep that in mind. That's, that's the point that Paul's making. Last chapter, you're dead to sin. So some of these things get mixed around and change position. We saw in the beginning, he was comparing it to marriage. He said the woman's married to the husband, but if he dies, she can get remarried to another husband. And he said, that's, got, that's the same as you guys. You're married to the law. And then we say, well, wait a minute. The, the law didn't die and we got remarried. We're the ones that died. Okay, it breaks down there a little bit. Obviously, but somebody died and then you can get remarried. That's, that's the point. That's one of those things I'm trying to say about this is like it, it doesn't line up perfectly. So yes, we had a husband and wife. Husband died, she remarries. We have a law and us. We died. And now we can go to the new law of the spirit. The law under Christ. We can be in Christ and not in in sin. 
couple other things with that. We see, we're going to see how sin kind of changes positions here. We start with uh, the law brought about sin, or it, it caused us to recognize the sin. And then the next verse, it'll say, well, sin, sin used the law to bring me to death. Okay, so now we've kind of switched positions there just a little bit. But it's the same idea that he's trying to get across. You got any comments or thoughts on that? that stuff that, like that that helps you understand this better? Does that make any sense at all? Yes, please. Right here with Boyd and Bob. Go ahead, Bob. I'll come back to you. Then the law, in essence, is dead to us. So it does fit in that uh, uh, comparison. Okay. That makes sense. Thinking from, from that way. And yeah, the thing about sin and death, uh, well, the law just points out sin and the penalty for sin. And so Satan uses that against us. Because we can't keep it. And so maybe that's why we get the idea that sin used the law. Right. Satan uses the law because we, you know, the Jews couldn't keep it, so he had to. Right. So that idea is Satan used the law. I'm going to talk about that more in just a second. Go ahead, boy. Most of that dilemma here is that people are going to think that the law is bad. And right. you've got to show. That what the law did, it accomplished God's purpose. The law is good. It's not the problem. It's not the law. The problem, and he personifies sin and makes it look like a evil monster, which it is. Right. And so it's uh, it's not the fault of the law. The law did its job, and the law is good. It's sin that is our problem. Exactly. All right. So. Then it talks about, it gives, it gives sin a personality and says, well, sin used the law to bring about death. How did sin use the law? And I think maybe one example of that would be going back to the Garden of Eden. Go back to Adam and Eve. If there, first of all, if there is no law, there's no way to sin, right? If, if, there's, if there's no law, there's nothing to break. There's nothing that can say you're wrong. But if there's a law, then you can have sin. So if you look at it and, and you give sin a personality, let's give that sin the personality of Satan. And God said, don't eat of this tree. And sin came and said, hey, I think you might want to check out this tree. And that was sin using the law and maybe more of a literal situation. Sin used that law and brought about death by causing, by, by enticing and convincing them to break it. Wow. Well, the, the law is often called the law of sin and death. And, and we put it in our terms as you sin, you die. Now, it's the consequences of the sin. And so that may be where that is, is fitting in uh, here in, in this section. Uh, it was sin producing death. Okay, I'm going to die because I sinned. Uh, 
Okay, very good. So some of the other terms that we get into here that you know kind of get mixed around the flesh but he mentions the flesh and then he mentions the body and are they the same thing or are they different we'll get into some of that as well yes and here we always see throughout the bible satan tries to take everything that is good and he twists it to where it looks a lot like that good thing but it's just different enough that it becomes bigger than god and you see that like in revelation and all over the place and we just tend to take Yeah, I think, I think there's several concepts wrapped up into that and how the law did that. And I think that's one of them. Um, using the law, using it against you, making the law become the authority instead of God. Now it's the law. We're going to keep that law. And as the Jews you know, thought about that and how uh, nobody that follows the Torah will ever possibly go to hell because the Torah will save you. It also gives you the idea that you can be good enough. Well, we got the law. We can't keep it perfect. But the law gives us a way to offer a sacrifice, and then we're okay. So the law is what's saving us. But as we see, Paul's pointing out, every one of you, Gentiles, Jews, and everyone that even lived before the law, Abraham, all the way back, are saved by the same thing. A trust in God which causes you to do what he wants you to do. And that's what saves you. Other comments. So in verse 5, chapter 7 and verse 5, it says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. These sinful passions were aroused by the law. Interesting phrase. How do, you think the, how do you think the sinful passions were aroused by the law or caused you to want to sin or brought up by the law? Is that, is that interesting? I mean, you ever really thought about that? The sinful passions that were aroused by the law. I think verse 7, then he goes on to say, well, you're saying the sinful passions were aroused by the law, therefore verse 7, is the law sin? That's where he goes into answering this question. Yes. Okay. I, 
I'm not real sure what to do with this first because I can see a couple different things here. Um, the law aroused the passion to sin. Is there, a, is there a thrill about going outside the boundary just a little bit? Is that what he's talking about? Maybe. Um, you know, there's even a, a writing, the, who is it, St. Augustine or something, his, his books talks about, talks about how he went to the neighbor's orchard and stole the pears. <coughs> he says, I didn't want the pears. You know, they're no better than my pears, but it was the thrill of getting away with going into the neighbor's orchard and taking the pears and that was something that if it hadn't been against the law i don't want those silly pears they're not even any good you know so it was it was something about that so maybe we're in that category the temptation is always there especially in our youth to and it doesn't mean just in our youth to to you know have the idea okay says i think that we'll be a little rebellious and we'll get as close to it as I can. And unfortunately, we walk that way far too often, as close as possible as we can. And that's basically the same thing. We are, uh, you know, the you can't do this is sometimes taken as a challenge. Right, right. It's like a dare or I bet you can't do this or something to that effect. So, uh, there you go. Uh, it's interesting too that Satan uses the law, like in Second Corinthians uh, 11, 14 and 15, he disguises himself as an angel of light. And his servants uh, disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, he says. So Satan uses the law. He, he, he wants us to think that uh, everything's good that he's going to do for us. And he's keeping the law, but he is against the law and against right. God's people. You're dangling the carrot and then snatching you from that. So, on the other hand, this, this passage, I think sometimes, um, I think some of the things that Paul's saying about this sin and this law are things that we, or people in general, we're doing as fleshly people and then the law says that's against the law so now that brings about death do you see a difference there it was like things they were already doing and the, and the law just comes along and points it out and says that's sinful so it may be another angle of this is the way that so, that the law brings about these sinful passions it's like they weren't sinful before there was a law, right? When there's no law, there's no sin. And then the law comes and it says, well, these are things I want to do and I've been doing all along. And the law says, nope, that's sinful. So I think that idea is also expressed in some of these passages. So there may be two things here that we're looking at, two different ways. Yes, Jesse. I think often uh, in focusing 
Right, so that uh, Cain and Abel thing, I want to look at that again even more when we get into this when we're discussing the latter part of this chapter and whether, uh, whether he's talking about... We'll get to that. Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, so, so Paul says in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, it's not. The law is not sin. It may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you should not covet. wonder why he uses coveting. Why didn't he use murder? Why didn't he use stealing or lying? It's a heart problem. A heart problem. There are some others that would also be heart problems, but I, I like that idea, and I think it's probably almost like a universal, which causes a lot of the other uh, sins that he could have used. It also, it also is a, uh, a, an idea of putting something else or yourself above God. You're, you're, I want the, this, and that's more important than what God wants for me. It also ties directly back to the first sin. So if you're just talking about sin in general, that was just a great example. The first instance of that being, oh, I want the fruit. Very good. Back to the original sin. The first sin was a coveting thing. Right here, Bob, did you have something? No, I was just going to mention pride alongside covetousness. Pride covetousness. Fits, fits the same idea. Um, so yeah, I think... I don't think Paul is here saying, okay, guys, I had this one problem, this sin that I had, and it was coveting, and it was pointed out by the law, and I was doing really well, but other than that coveting thing, I think it's a, a collective thing that he uses as an example. Again, that's a, that's a literary type thing, a language type thing. So if, can we allow that there? I think we're going to be allowing some things here as we go farther in the chapter that will help us understand that. All right, I had another point, and it was a really good one, and I can't remember 
at all what it was. Let's see. So in, in, in verse 7 is answering, I think, that idea from chapter 5. These sinful passions were aroused, and so people might say, all right, well then sin's bad. Nope. Or the law's bad. He says, no, it's not. The law did its job, and as we mentioned, the job of the law was to point out the sin, but it had no power to forgive it. And that's why we need a Savior. That's why everybody needs a Savior. That's why everybody throughout history needs that Savior. One, uh, one way that I heard this described is trying to... I think I mentioned last time, it's like, okay, God sent Jesus and he died and he paid the price and now people are saved. Okay, so now I've taken care, I've taken care of you guys and I've taken care of everybody in the future. And then God's like, oh man, what am I going to do with all those people that lived a long time ago? You know, as if, oh, I forgot about them. And I think the hardest thing for us in dealing with that is what we call time. God has no, God has, God doesn't have to deal with time in that way. It's not like, oh, well, those people were in the past and these people are after Jesus to God. I think it's a universal package. It's a, you know, the price was now paid. Oh, good. Takes care of everybody. But we look at that with our earthly minds, our feeble minds and everything is time. You know, we all have our watches and our phones and our clocks and, and everything, and that's past, present, or future, which we're going to get into in the latter part of the chapter is the same idea, some more dealing with that. So maybe that would help, this idea we're not having to deal with, or God doesn't deal, have to deal with time. All right, so there's a couple ways to look at this this section in chapter 7. Um, Paul starts going through some things and how uh, this is what I do, this is not what I want to do, but this is what I did, and, and it gets, the language gets really confusing, I think. I don't think there's a simple way to look at that. There's two, there's two main thoughts. One is Paul uses the word I as in the present. I don't do what I want to do, but I do what the sin causes me to do, and it's sin living in me and, and those things. Is he literally saying that's what I'm doing right now as a Christian in Christ? That's one view on that. There are some problems with that. You have to deal with this. Uh, we just said we died to sin, and Paul says now sin's living in me. Which is it? The other view is Paul's using himself as a generic pre-salvation example of all mankind. But he uses the word I. Is that uncommon? Paul sometimes uses we and I in dealing with the Jews. Uh, he talks about himself and talks sometimes about the pre-saved condition and, you know, we were doing this. So either way, you've got to deal with some types of things in the language. What's the difference? Can we live with both of those positions? Well, it might depend on what 
your, what you conclude from that. I mean, I could read that and say, it'd be like, well, the devil made me do it. You know, it wasn't me. I, I, I'm nothing, you know, I have no responsibility in this. If that's what you mean by the sin living in me and me doing not what I want to do, but what, what it causes me to do, then that's a problem. But maybe you could justify that and say, well, I still have those passions because I'm a, I'm a person and sometimes I do things and that's, that's why. So you could fit that in. The other way you have to say, well, Paul's not talking about I, myself, right now. He's talking about in, in the past. I think Paul is describing a universal problem. That's a problem with him. You know, he faces it, he battles it. We all battle sin. No matter how strong we are or how many years we've been doing it, it's still a constant battle. And I think that's what he's describing. It, it's not something that you say, okay, I've defeated sin, I don't have to do anything anymore. And I think this, this is one thing he's pointing out. He has to continually fight against the urges. And that's... That makes, that makes sense. And we fit that with other passages, I think, that say the same thing. So I could look at this passage and I could say, <coughs> yep, that's what Paul's saying. I think there's another way to look at it as well. And then we'll, we'll talk about both of those and see... You know, if we have what merit we have with those. But I will say one thing before this. We talked about Cain and Abel. And God said to Cain, sin is trying to get you. Sin is crouching. He's trying to, he wants you to do this. He wants to make you die by using the law. And what did God tell Cain? You need to overcome it. You need to master it. And now we're going to see language that looks like sin is the master. So that's where I would question one way or the other, but I can, I can argue either side. So we'll pick sides here in a minute and we'll argue back. Yes? I don't want to jump back and forth on, on this myself. Yeah. I tend to lean that way myself, but I love that accountability thing because regardless of how you look at that, 
I don't think anybody's saying, oh, well, we don't have any accountability because sin's living in me and it's sin doing it. I didn't want to do it. I was trying to follow the law, but sin did that. So I'm fine. I don't think anybody would say that. So accountability, either way we look at that, you're still accountable. But we'll look at some more language here in a second. Yeah, please. Right. Christ through the Spirit is how we're cleansed. Well, whether it's against Paul's will or not, and it is, we all know that we do things we don't want to do, but if we humble and submit ourselves to God through His Son, we do have the hope. And it's not able, it, it wasn't Cain that should have been able to master it, it was him trusting in God that he could have overcome. Right. Yeah. Through the trust in God, allowing Him or helping Him to, to, uh, to master that sin. So. Uh, yeah, the, the whole letter so far, Paul's been just saying, you need a Savior over and over. So the reason I put those questions up there that way is to help maybe try to see the context of this by the terms that are used. That's where I come down on that. It's like, so what it appears to me is, is verse 5 is talking about the flesh, the person without Christ. Verse 5, for while we were in the flesh, sinful passions aroused by the law, those were at work, and the members of our body bear fruit for death. All those terms. Remember last class we went back through all the terms for pre-salvation, through all the first six chapters? These are the highlights. Look at verse 6. But now we've been... We're released from the law. We're dead to that that we were bound to. So we serve in newness of the Spirit. We're in the Spirit now, not in the law, and not in the oldness of the letter or the letter of the law. So now those terms talk about salvation in Christ. There's definitely a contrast there. And I think what Paul then does is go in verse 7 through the end of the chapter and expand on the idea of verse 5. What, is it, what do you mean in the flesh, in sin, under law, dead? And he uses all those terms in that rest of that chapter. But as soon as you get to chapter 8, he switches and it starts expanding on verse 6. And says, now... We're in the Spirit. We're living by the Spirit. We're in the newness. We're alive. We're no longer dead to sin. We're no longer bound to sin. And all those terms come out. So it appears that that's what he's contrasting is those two ideas in this. So let's just read through this and stop as necessary to, to comment. <clears throat> but what, verse 7, what shall we say then is the law of sin may never be. On the contrary... I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. I'm going to stop right there. When was Paul, even if he's talking about himself specifically, when was Paul alive apart from, apart from the law? 
Yeah, did I say that right? I was alive apart from the law. When was Paul alive apart from the law? He says he was. I was alive apart from the law. Maybe he's using that as in a general term for mankind was alive apart from the law. But I think also specifically in himself. You got a idea on that? When was Paul alive? Bob? Well, we use a similar term today when we're talking about youth. Okay. Uh, when a young person, uh, until they reach a certain age of, age of accountability, uh, then they're, in essence, alive apart from knowing sin. Uh, you know, they may, they may not know right from wrong. He may ref be referring to that uh, state in his life. I think that would fit with that. So a child is alive because there's no accountability, there's no law. And, and also another thing that's interesting that he chose the last of the Ten Commandments as a comparison there, which is, as one commentator put it, a uh, focuses entirely on our inward nature. Right. And like some of the other things that he did. So that's going to be the hardest thing to control. What we have to control. Right. So I think, I think that would fit with the, with the young person. Alive. I think it would also fit with mankind before there was a law. They were alive. So the analogy might be in the life of a person. But how, how were people alive before there was a law? Well, I think in the way that we were just talking, there's, there's really maybe a very short time period when there was no law, when Adam and Eve were created. And okay, there's no law. And then God said, don't eat of this tree, right? So now there's a law. But they were alive and then the law caused the death. So Paul could be saying, mankind was alive before there was a law. You know, I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died or people died or mankind died. Before law came, and that could be the law of Moses or any law, the law that the Gentiles had, right. there was no penalty for sin. Well, even beyond that, there was no sin, because if there's not a law... <laughs> I mean, there was no, without a law, there's no penalty for breaking the law. Right, right. And, and so, so there's no death, because that's the penalty. Right, so that's when when people die. All right, so side note, I don't want to get into the bashing other things or going into all the other religions, but one a, a common belief is that we're born in sin among a lot of people in the world. We're born dead. I think this is one passage that clearly says, I was alive before there was a commandment. So regardless of whether that's him or back to people, there's a point where people were alive. People were born alive and they died because of sin not because they were born with it and they were already dead when they born when they were born and that's all i want to say on that uh, when the commandment came sin became alive and i died verse 10 and this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for sin taking opportunity again through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me 
So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good. That through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual. And I think Paul goes right into, this is where I would say he's just going to go right into explaining this even farther and deeper than he, than he already has. You know, the sin, the, that which is good became a cause of death. Well, how did that happen, Paul? I mean, what, what was the deal with people? Well, look at 14. We know, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh. Flesh, used so far throughout this book, is always talking about the sinful side of man, the, the carnal man, not, not the body. Paul says, you know, I died to the flesh. Well, wait a minute, you're, you're still standing here. You're not dead. No, I'm not talking about my physical body. I'm talking about that fleshly side of the person, that carnal side. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. That's one of, the, one of the phrases I think we'll have to deal with if we're thinking this is Paul in his current state. Because I would have to argue that he's said the opposite of that many times so far. I'm not sold into bondage of sin, and I am not flesh. I am now spiritual. So I see a, a difference there. Verse 15, for that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the thing that I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it. But sin, which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Verse 24, I think, is another thing that helps define this. Uh, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death. First of all, the word death. Uh, Who's going to set me free? So he's in bondage to this death and to this sin. And he's wanting to get out of that. And wretched man that I am. In the original, that's just three words. Wretched. I, man. So is that the definition of all the previous eyes in that section? Man in general? Wretched, I, man. Yep, man is wretched. Man is fleshly. Man, before Christ, is in bondage, is in death, is, has sin indwelling in him. But that changes, and we go to the spiritual. Wretched man that I am. He's like crying out, how, am I gonna, how are we going to get out of this? And he can't help but say in verse 25, thanks be to God. 
So what's the answer? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, summary then, I think, the way I would read that, after he says, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Summarize. So then on the one hand of what he just said, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. All right. That is the end of that section. Paul says that's, that's the bad side. That's the earthly, the, the fleshly side, the sinful side, the life without Christ. Again, you have to say, you have to say that the I is not me right now. All right, you can't get past that. that that's kind of weird. Uh, but to look at it the other way, you have to say, well, it's okay to have sin dwelling in me and, and I'm a slave to it. You got to get past that. So one way or the other, we got to deal with it. Possibly, yeah, let me think about it. So you're saying it's more of a, an allegory, an allegory, <laughs> kind of talking about being, I was alive apart from the law because I just didn't know, or I thought I was alive because I hadn't really recognized how sin has caused me to be dead. That is a, uh, that is a possibility. So then, starting in chapter 8, I think he starts expanding on this idea from verse 6. Released from the law. Died to that which we were bound. So we serve in newness of the Spirit. And verse 3 of chapter 8, we mentioned last time, is kind of the conclusion or the answer to this, or the, this whole section. And it falls, I think, in the middle of these two. For what the law could not do... Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. So Paul just pointed out how helpless and hopeless everything looked. You don't have a chance. And then he says, the law couldn't do it. That's not what the purpose of the law was. And what it couldn't do, God did. Sent his own son. And he even sent him in the likeness of this flesh that is your problem that you can't deal with. He even sent him in that likeness as an offering for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh, being himself a, a human. Comments? Thoughts? I get lost in all the, uh, in, in these verses. For the good I wish I do not do, and I practice the evil that I do not, <laughs> that I do not wish. And he goes back and forth. It sounds like he says the same thing about four times in this, in these verses. Yeah, Bob? I think uh, oftentimes we, when we want to look at this one way and the other, you know, this last, 
kind. And sometimes where we're at spiritually, and if we're having struggles in our spirit walk with God, and we look and we read those, what Paul says there is kind of just a, a shadowy reflection of what everybody goes through, no matter whether it's under the law or under Christ. Okay. We're struggling. Yes. It starts ringing bells for us, and we say, man, he's, he's talking to me. That's me right there. You know? Yes. And uh, yes. I'm speaking from personal experience. So uh, yes. I think there is a tendency for us to kind of embrace it. Look, Paul, he, he, he had his problems, too. Well, right. What Paul did have those problems. He was a man. Right, right. But he also said, I've been crucified with Christ. Yes. It's not I who live. Yeah, thanks for... I, I, meant to say something about that. I, let's go some more on that in just a second. Yeah. I was really going to say the same thing. It, it um, kind of finally uh, digesting that concept made me feel a little bit normal, right? Like, hey, this is a state, but also you have this up, you have this thing. I also think this, in my opinion, it, to them, they, uh, it was very cultural to know your spiritual side today Right. Yeah, I think we can relate to that. I think we can feel like we like this verse. We like to be able to say, man, I really want to do what's right, but oh, it's, it's that sin and it makes it hard. And Paul had the same problem. So again, those, that's the two, the two ways to look at that. I don't think anybody's saying, hope not, nobody's saying, well, I'm not responsible. I can do whatever I want. And because Paul said, eh, it's sin living in me. I don't think that's the idea, but I think there are a couple options here. So, thank you very much. Chris. Yes. Thanks. Thanks.